Happy Sabbath, everyone. Delighted to be here with you. Happy Sabbath to all of us here in Charlotte and then to those who will see this around the world and in days to come. Certainly is a, a warm and, and uh, a beautiful summer's day here, and uh, I see all of you fanning. Feel free. That, that's, that's certainly permissible. And uh, <clears throat> I want to welcome, add my welcome to the guests. We have folks here from several parts of the country visiting from other church areas, and we have some folks here who are here for the first time. We want to say we're very happy to have you here. Welcome. You know, brethren, we live in perilous times. Who can deny it? You watch the news, you read the newspaper, you probably have your internet news. You see that our nation is at war with religious fanatics who set off bombs in crowded places, killing themselves and killing and maiming other people. It's not only happening here now, of course, it's uh, happened in other parts of the world, in, in London, in the subway, in Spain, on the train, recently, just the last few days, in India with 200 people being killed as they went about their business by people who wanted to strike terror. We do live in perilous times. We see unprecedented security measures wherever we go, which affect all of us as we travel and as we go about our daily lives. It's not like it was when uh, you could go without much thought about security. Today, security is uh, of concern to everyone. As we look around our country and around the world, we see disaster upon disaster here again in our own country and around the world, just in the recent days, we've seen the, seen the incredible flooding in the northeast part of the United States. We see wildfires, even as I speak right now, ravaging the southwest. An inferno involving tens of thousands of acres. And we see, just looking at what happened last year when New Orleans and most of the Gulf Coast was reduced to a stinking garbage heap by Katrina as it wiped out that city and so many, did so much damage along the coast. Now, we read and study the prophecies of the Old and New Testaments, and we see plainly that as bad as it is, it's going to get worse, much worse in the days ahead. Now, we come to services here. We enjoy that. We enjoy the fellowship. But we come here and we hear messages about these things. And we preach about what lies ahead on, we preach that on television and on the internet and in our publications. We're outlining these things. We're warning about these things that are going to happen. It's a sobering and to some people a frightening message. Now even some in God's church become discouraged or upset when they hear these things. Someone actually said to me, you know, Mr. Meredith is frightening the children. Well, <laughs> brethren, that might be. That, that might happen. But the fact remains, uh, a time of great trouble uh, lies ahead for Israel and for the other nations of this world. I'm going to turn to a passage of Scripture that you all know by heart. But humor me. Turn there with me. Matthew 24. We could look at uh, Luke 21, but I think it really outlines what I want to bring better here in Matthew 24. <clears throat> the disciples were being taught by Jesus, and they asked the question, beginning in verse 3 of Matthew 24. Now, as he sat on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, Tell us, when will 
these things be and what will be the sign of your coming and of the end of the age? And Jesus answered and said to them, Take heed that no one deceives you. For many will come in my name, saying, I am the Christ, and will deceive many. Certainly, brethren, that has happened through history, and it's happening now. I know that you're aware that here in Charlotte, we have there are over 700 churches in the city of Charlotte, North Carolina. There are a lot of people, you see, that bring uh, messages that aren't accurate, and they can deceive people. He goes on and says, and you will hear of wars and rumors of wars. And certainly, as I mentioned in the beginning... War is going on right now. War in Afghanistan, war in Iraq, and now a very hot, a very uh, troublesome war going on uh, in Israel. That little narrow strip of land and the neighbors around it are all, it's a conflagration. They're burning their cities and bombing each other. It's, it's an incredible thing, and we see it happening. Jesus Christ's words were very accurate. You will hear of wars and rumors of wars. <clears throat> going on in verse 7, for nation will rise against nation. And kingdom against kingdom. And there will be famines, pestilences, and earthquakes in various places. We see those things happening. And it's the beginning of sorrows as we see. Verse 8. All these things are, are, are the beginning of sorrows. Then, it goes on, they will deliver you up to tribulation and kill you. Not a pleasant perspective. And yet at some point in time, persecution will come. And you will be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will be offended. Sadly, that will happen. It's happened already, and in time to come, more will be offended. We'll betray one another. We'll hate one another. Then many false prophets will rise up and deceive many, because lawlessness will abound, and the love of many will grow cold. But he who endures to the end shall be saved. And this is something we focus on, verse 14. And this gospel, this good message, this good news of the kingdom will be preached in all the world as a witness to all the nations, and then the end will come. In our announcements today, you heard about things that are going on in various parts of the world. As small as we are, we're certainly trying to get this message out, just as it talks about here, to preach the gospel, this good message, to all around the world. And as we read these passages, we realize he's describing here difficult times, terrible conditions. But for us, brethren, the message is plain. Look back in Matthew 24 in verse 6. He described all those things. And in Matthew 24, verse 6, he said, See that you are not troubled. The message for us, the message for God's people is, while all this is going on, while these terrible conditions are unfolding, he says that we are not to be troubled. But how? How how can you not be troubled when you see all these things occurring? Well, obviously, he would not give us that instruction if he didn't prepare or show us the way. Brethren, what should our attitude be? What should our approach, our state of mind be as we face all these things that we've described? That's what I want us to explore today as we go through the sermon As we live our Christian lives, as we try to be the work, let's be certain that we look at the whole picture, the the panoramic scope of what God is working out on this earth. Let's consider what God has in store for us as individuals and His church and for all 
mankind. Now, while we often consider the difficulties that lie ahead, Paul, the apostle, put it in proper perspective for us today in his letter to the church at Rome. Please turn back to Romans chapter 8. Romans chapter 8. The Apostle Paul, who expressed things so beautifully and who wrote so much of the New Testament, he put this in perspective. You know, they had great persecution. They had great difficulties in their time. In Romans 8, verse 18, Paul said, For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory which shall be revealed in us. What did Paul focus on? The glory. What what was that glory? What is he talking about here? He was going through difficulties. The church was going through difficulties. And he said, yet they were those sufferings weren't even worthy to be compared to this glory. Now, a little more light is shed on this subject by Paul in the book of 1 Corinthians. Turn over to 1 Corinthians chapter 2. 1 Corinthians chapter 2. And he explores this and expands on this. 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 7. 1 Corinthians 2, verse 7. But we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery. And you know, brethren, to most of the people in this world, the Bible is a mystery. The truth that is found there is not understood. It is a mystery. The hidden wisdom which God ordained before the ages, what? For our glory. There is a plan unfolding. And God includes us in that plan. And it's called hidden wisdom here, ordained before the ages. Verse 8, which none of the rulers of this age knew, for if they had known, they would not have crucified the Lord of glory. But as it is written, I has not seen nor ear heard nor have entered into the heart of man the things which God has prepared for those who love Him. Brethren, what God has in store for us boggles the mind. It's very hard for we human beings to really grasp the significance of it. Verse 10, But God has revealed them to us through His Spirit. For the Spirit searches all things, yes, the deep things of God. And as I said, brother, what God has in store for us truly does boggle the mind. We don't really, even though we study it, we meditate on it, we think about it, we hear sermons on it, I don't think we really grasp the magnitude or the significance of our reward. It really is uh, something that we need to understand, particularly as we face the things that we preach about and talk about and write about. Now, even John, the, the apostle that was so close to Jesus had trouble grasping this. Turn back to 1 John. John, the disciple that Jesus loved, had difficulty wrapping his mind around this. In 1 John 3, verse 2. 1 John 3, verse 2. John wrote, Beloved, we would say, dear friends, you see, Beloved, Now we are children of God, and it has not yet been revealed what we shall be. He said, we don't know what it's going to be like. We have the concept, we know what the Scripture says, but we don't really know what it will be like. But we know that when He is revealed, we shall be like Him. 
for we shall see him as he is. So he said, though we don't really know when, when Christ is manifested, when he returns, we're going to be like him. So it was something that was surely very inspiring to him. And as we think about this, later on, later on, you see, he had a clue. He got a look at the glorified Jesus Christ. Turn back to Revelation chapter 1. He understood that while he didn't know exactly what it would be like, but we would be like the resurrected Jesus Christ, spirit beings with great power. And then in Revelation 1, Revelation 1, we see that John got a look. Let's, let's begin in verse 10. Revelation 1, verse 10. <clears throat> John says, I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day, and I heard behind me a loud voice as of a trumpet. So something that he couldn't ignore, a loud voice, like a trumpet. Verse 11, saying, I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last. And what you see, write in a book. And send it to the seven churches which are in Asia, to Ephesus, to Smyrna, to Pergamos, to Thyatira, to Sardis, to Philadelphia, and to Laodicea. So here we see described a vision, but from the Holy Spirit. Very important that we understand this because it gives us a clue as to this glory that Paul wrote about. Let's begin going in verse 12. Then I turned, John turned. To see the voice that spoke with me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. These lampstands being a symbol of the church, you see. Verse 13. And in the midst of the seven lampstands, one like the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the feet, and girded about the chest with a golden band. His head and hair were like white, like wool, as white as snow. His eyes like a flame of fire. His feet were like fine brass as if refined in a furnace, and his voice as the voice or the sound of many waters. Verse 16, He had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was like the sun shining in its strength. Here we see a detailed description in symbol. And as we read this, brethren, we see the emphasis is on radiant power and strength. Think about it, brethren. That will be yours. Because it says that when He appears, we will be like Him. That's what we see here. And I hope that we can begin to understand that and focus on that as we think about what lies ahead. Now, when Jesus and uh, later the apostles proclaimed these things, the good message about the kingdom of God and their part in it, what was the reaction of those who believed. In other words, when this message, the same message that we preach today, when it was preached back then, what was the reaction of, of the people? Turn back to Mark. Mark chapter 12. Mark 12. In Mark 12, we see that Jesus Christ is teaching the people in the first part of the of chapter twelve, he gives the parable of of the the vineyard vineyard owner and 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 gives the um, the, the message there. He goes on and explains to those people about uh, taxes and that we should pay our taxes. Going on through the book, he there the uh, Sadducees brought up the resurrection, questioning the resurrection, trying to trap Jesus, and certainly 
he explained that. And so we see these teachings unfolding as he was preaching to them. Uh, Look at verse 37. Last part it says, And the common people heard him gladly. What was their reaction? The the, the Sadducees, the, the Pharisees, the lawyers, the others, they didn't receive this. It's not what they wanted to hear. It didn't fit their paradigm. It didn't fit their idea of how it should be. And yet, the common people, the people that he was teaching there, they heard him gladly. Brethren, if you'd like a title for today's sermon, I've entitled it, Hear Him Gladly. Hear Him Gladly. Now, notice when we read this, they heard. They actually listened. Again, the Pharisees and Sadducees didn't listen. They didn't want to hear the message. It didn't fit what they thought it should be. And these people, what was their reaction? They were glad. Not skeptical. Not questioning. Not accusative. But gladly. That was their attitude. They heard the message gladly. Now, if you'll look up the Greek... I'm not a Greek scholar. Happily, we have Greek scholars. The word for uh, glad is, in Greek, H-E-D-E-O-R. Now, I'll make the Greek scholars cringe when I pronounce this. Hadios. Hadios, I believe. Now, this word means with pleasure. They heard the word and they received it with pleasure. It means with delight. And, And here's the one I like. It means sweetly. Now, if you tell a young person today something that they agree with or something that really makes them happy, they'll say, sweet. (laughs) And that's what this means. And that's not something new. Hold your place there and turn back to Ezekiel chapter 2. Ezekiel chapter 2. Here's a very interesting account. Ezekiel was being dealt with by God here. Ezekiel chapter 2, verse 9. Ezekiel 2, verse 9, it says, Now when I looked, Ezekiel writing here, there was a a scroll, I'm sorry, a hand stretched out to me, and behold, a scroll of a book was in it. So he's being handed a scroll. Then he spread it before me, and there was writing on the inside and on the outside, and written on it were the lamentations and mourning and woe. In other words, a warning, difficulties. We've talked about that already today. Going on in chapter 3, verse 1, Moreover, he said to me, Son of man, eat what you find. Eat this scroll and go and speak to the house of Israel. Verse 2, So I opened my mouth, and he caused me to eat the scroll. And he said to me, Son of man, feed your belly and fill your stomach with this scroll that I give you. So I ate, and it was in my mouth like honey in sweetness. To Ezekiel, God's word was sweet. Is it sweet to you, brother? It should be. Because what we find here is the purpose of life. What we find here is the instruction that we need. And certainly it should be sweet to us as it was to Ezekiel, as it was to those people who heard Jesus and who heard him sweetly, as it were. They received it with delight. Let's turn over to Luke chapter 8 as we think about this. Look at some more expressions where people had this attitude. Luke Chapter 8. Now, this is the account of where Jesus had uh, 
cast the demons out of the man, and the demons went into the herd of swine, and the swine, this huge herd, went rushing down the hill into the lake and all drowned. That must have been quite a sight. <laughs> you know, the, the, the special effects people in movies today might have a hard time duplicating that. But uh, I just have this mental image, you see. Growing up in Arkansas, I'm familiar with hogs. You see, I understand how that works. And so that's the, 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 the situation that we're dealing with. And then it goes right on in verse 40 of Luke 8. It says, so it was... When Jesus returned, that the multitude welcomed him, for they were all waiting for him. Now, this word welcomed here is the same word as gladly received. So they received him with gladness. They were eager to hear what he had to say. They wanted to be taught. They welcomed him. They received him gladly. Now, coming on down later, after Jesus Christ had uh, been uh, um, ascended to heaven on the day of Pentecost. Turn over to Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2. Here we read about what happened on that holy day, which we kept here just a few weeks ago. The day of Pentecost when the Holy Spirit was given for the first time. And there we read about this powerful sermon that the Apostle Peter preached. And what was their reaction? Look at Acts chapter 2, verse 41. Acts 2, verse 41. Then those who gladly received the word were baptized. And that day, about 3,000 souls were added to them. So they heard the message. They received it gladly. And in that time, 3,000 people were added to the church. You know, we long for the time that that will happen. We have about 3,000 plus people every day, every week responding to our telecasts and to our, uh, the, the media efforts that we have. And that's wonderful. Not all of them are coming into the church, as it were, but we're reaching out. But in this case, 3,000 people were added that day. And it says here they gladly received the message that was given. Now, <clears throat> um, uh, as we think about this, though, brother, not everybody received it gladly that day. Not everybody received it gladly. Turn back a page in, to verse, um, verses 12 and 13 of Acts 2. And we see their reaction. Verse 12, So they were all amazed at the things they saw and heard. They were all amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, Whatever could this mean? So they saw the miracles and they heard the people speaking in other languages and so on. Verse 13, Others mocking, saying, They're drunk. They're drunk. They're full of wine. You see, so not everybody heard. Not everybody received it gladly. Brethren, it's the same way today. It's the same way today. Some get it. Some don't. Some receive it gladly. And some think that we're fools or that we're drunk or some other thing. They, they are skeptic and just don't get it. Going back over to uh, verse 42, Acts chapter 2, verse 42, going right on after it said that they were baptized, verse 42, and they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in breaking of bread, and in prayers. <clears throat> so they continued. You notice they were breaking bread. I always like to say that God's people excel in breaking bread. You know, that's really what we do best. <laughs> we really do. And then dropping down to verse 46, so continuing daily 
with one accord in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they ate their food with gladness and simplicity of heart. Brethren, it was a rough time. It was not an easy time for those people. And yet they faced difficulty and they faced hardship. But they had gladness of heart, which is pleasing to God. Going on in verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to the church daily those who were being saved. I hope that we can follow their example. And as we learn things and as we grow and as we hear the messages, that we can receive it with gladness of heart. Brethren, even though our message is sobering, we need this joyful, positive, uplifting attitude of being glad. Now, let's look at some reasons that we as God's people, His church, can be glad. Now, I have seven reasons. That probably doesn't surprise any of you. We could have more or less, but, but seven is a good number. Let's look at the first one. Reasons to be glad as God's people. The first one is be glad you've been called, chosen. It is a special privilege. Turn over to Matthew chapter 20. Be glad that you're called and chosen. Sometimes after a while we might begin to take it for granted. And we should never do that. Matthew chapter 20. Here we have the parable of the laborers. Uh, this illustrates to me that there is a work to be done. Whenever these things, it's, it's a parable in this situation of laboring in the vineyard. And you can read that and enjoy that. But we'll start in verse 16 where it says, as it wraps up, So the last will be first and the first last, for many are called, but few are chosen. Interesting. A lot of people today are hearing the message. Thousands, tens of thousands, a half a million people will see the telecast tomorrow or over this television week. But only a few will respond. And of those few who respond, only a few will actually act on it over time. Now, as we think about this, then we realize that many hear, but only a few respond. This is repeated. We won't turn there, but it's repeated in Matthew 22, verse 14, where it says, many are called but few are chosen. Now, Peter, who responded when Jesus said, follow me, ever thought about that? Peter was a successful businessman, had a business to run. Uh, Jesus came and said, follow me, and he walked away from it all. Walked away from it all. He, he acted on that. And Peter wrote about this calling that you have, that that I have, that he had back then. Turn back to uh, 1 Peter chapter 2. This calling that should make us glad. 1 Peter chapter 2. 1 Peter 2, we'll begin in verse 9. Peter wrote, But you are a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light, who were once not a people, but are now the people of God, who had not obtained mercy, but now have obtained mercy. You know, brethren, we can read over things and, and maybe not really focus on it as well as we should. He says here that we are a special people, not run-of-the-mill, 
not ordinary. You may think of yourself in that way, but brethren, God saw something special in you or you wouldn't be here. You didn't just wander in here. God saw something special in you. You are a chosen generation, a special people, not of a masses, and again, not run-of-the-mill, because God has a purpose for you. It goes on and says that He called you out of darkness. You know, as we've had these many disasters and uh, storms and so on that have wreaked havoc and caused great power outages, you know, you think about that and you have sympathy for those people when that happens because people are in the dark. They're cold. When the power comes on, the people are glad. They're glad to be back in the light. They're able to do what they need to do and what they normally do. I mean, we take it for granted until it's gone and then when it's there. And so, brethren, I hope that we can be that way. Are you glad to be out of darkness? The darkness that this world is in and in the light. It's a cause for rejoicing. And yet, after a while, as human beings, you see, it gets to be old hat. And we might take it for granted. He goes on here and says, the people of God. Wow, think about that. Out of all the people that there are on the face of the earth, he says, we are the people of God. It's another reason to be glad. And sometimes, again, we focus on the difficulties and the trials and the things that are coming, and we forget, you see, that God has called us for a special purpose. It says that we, uh, going on here, that we had obtained mercy. Mercy. You know, we all want mercy and not justice. If we get justice, we're done for. But we all want mercy. And certainly we ask God for mercy. Now, think about this. The person on death row who's waiting for that time, for the execution, and the phone rings, and it's the governor. And he's pardoned. The penalty is taken away. Now, do you think that person is glad? Do you think that person feels that there's a great burden lifted? Certainly, he would. And you can kind of put yourself in that place. Brethren, we, just like that, have obtained mercy. Not that we deserved it. But God has granted us that. He has a purpose and he is working it out. Now let's look at another aspect of our calling, something that should make us glad. Turn back to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We'll begin in verse 1. 1 Corinthians 1, verse 1. Paul, he says, called to be an apostle of Jesus Christ through the will of God and Sosthenes, our brother, to the church of God. The church you see in his time, and we are the church of God today, which is at Corinth, to those who are sanctified in Christ Jesus, call to be saints. Now again, we can read over that. These aren't words that we may use every day, you see, but what does it mean, called to be saints? If you look that up, uh, the, the Greek is, and again, pardon my Greek because I'm not a Greek scholar, but it's H-A-G-I-O-S, hagios. It means sacred. This saint, you see, is uh, clean, uh, figuratively innocent. It means holy, set apart, you see, for holy use. And if you look up the word here that's translated called, called to be saints, it means appointed. You were appointed. It's like a commission, as it were, you see, to be uh, a, a saint, someone who 
is to be used by God in a special way. Sanctified meaning to just set, be set apart for special use, not for common use or ordinary things you see in that way, but for special use. So it's certainly something that should make us happy to realize that we have been appointed as saints in the church of God. Of course, some of the worldly churches don't understand that. They think you have to wait about 400 years to be a saint and have a couple of miracles to your credit. It's not the way it works, <laughs> you see, because we are saints if we are called by God and a part of his church. Now, this wonderful calling, brethren, that we think about here comes with a guarantee. Don't you love it when you get something that's got a great warranty, a great guarantee? Well, this calling that you've been given has a guarantee. Turn over to Romans chapter 11. Romans chapter 11. I take great comfort in this, brethren, and I hope that you will too. Romans chapter 11, verse 29. Paul wrote to the church at Rome, For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. It's like getting a policy that says non-cancelable. You see, once you have it, certainly God, you see, will not give up on you. You can walk away from God. You can, you can leave the faith. You can fall away. But God, you see, he, he, the calling that He gives you, He will not give up on you. You can give up on Him and walk away. But we have this wonderful guarantee. And it's, it's something you can count on. That's the point I want to make. You can count on the calling of God. It's always been that way with God. I won't turn there, but you can read in Numbers chapter 23 and other places where God says that His will will be done. He, If He wills it, He will carry it out. He has called you, and He gives you that guarantee. Now, let's look at the second thing that I want to look at today. Be glad that we have an understanding of God's Word and of prophecy. What an important thing. What an important thing. Now, is it because we are smarter? More intelligent than others? No, not at all. This understanding that we have is a gift. It's a gift because there are brilliant people who study the Scriptures their whole lives and never have an understanding because God is not working with them at this time. Turn over to Luke 24. Luke 24. Luke 24 Verse 45, Luke 24, verse 45, here the Great Commission has been given. Jesus is preparing to ascend to heaven, and he's telling his disciples what he wants them to do. He's giving them what we call the Great Commission. And in verse 45, it says, And he opened their understanding that they might comprehend the Scriptures. So even then, after being with him for years, Jesus had to open their understanding so that the disciples could understand the Scriptures. This understanding, the comprehension of the Scriptures comes by the guidance of the Holy Spirit. It's not about how intelligent we are or how smart we are, although God certainly gives us intelligence and He wants us to use that and to grow. But the understanding of the Scriptures is from His gift, the gift of the Holy Spirit. And I hope that we can understand that. Now, as we think about this, turn back to Ephesians chapter 1. It describes this spirit, something that we can pray for and ask for God to increase our understanding. I'm sure that you do. Ephesians chapter 1. 
another of Paul's letters, Ephesians 1, verse 17. Actually, let's begin in verse 15 to pick up the context. Here's a prayer for Revelation. Ephesians 1, verse 15. Therefore, I also, after I heard of your faith in the Lord Jesus and your love for all the saints, did not cease to give thanks for you, mentioning, making mention of you in my prayers. Verse 17. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give to you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. He asked that God give the Ephesians the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Verse 18, the eyes of your understanding being enlightened. Brethren, you have had your eyes open. You have been enlightened by God giving you that gift. It has been opened to you that you may know what is the hope of His calling. What are the riches of the glory of His inheritance in the saints? There's that theme again about the glory that God has for us. This inheritance that we look forward to as we live this physical life and try to grow and understand. As we think about this, brethren, going on from the spirit of wisdom and understanding, let's turn back to Matthew 13. You have something given to you that men of old longed for. Turn to Matthew chapter 13. We're looking at lots of scriptures today, as we usually do, because that's where the truth is found. That's where the story is told. And I hope you enjoy doing that as much as I do. Matthew 13. Matthew chapter 13. Now, here we've given, uh, again, the parables um, uh, as Jesus was teaching them and explaining that he taught by parables not to explain things openly, but the parables actually contained hidden meaning and that only those who had their eyes open could understand it. And we pick up the story then in verse 16, Matthew 13, verse 16. But blessed are your eyes, for they see, and your ears, for they hear. For assuredly I say to you that many prophets and righteous men desired to see what you see and did not see it, and to hear what you hear and did not hear it. And then he explained the parable. You know the story. Daniel was given this fabulous prophecy and yet he didn't understand it. He wrote it down and it was preserved for our time. And many of those ancient prophets and others probably wondered what it all meant. And yet they were used as instruments by God to put it down. And now it's opened up to us. It was opened up when Jesus opened their minds to it and it is opened to us by the power of the Holy Spirit. The men of old long to see and understand what's been opened to you. Brethren, having this understanding should make us glad. Let's look at the third thing that we should be glad about. Be glad that you're among the first fruits. It's something that should bring you great joy. Now, we have the opportunity to be in the first resurrection. Turn over to 1 Corinthians 15, the resurrection chapter, something that we often read at a funeral when we're trying to comfort the family and focus on our reward and how it's going to unfold. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. That's actually beginning in verse 19. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 19. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men the most pitiable. You know, if this life is all there is, we're just pitiful. That, that's what Paul is saying. Verse 20, but now Christ is risen from the dead 
and he's become the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. First fruits. What is it talking about here? Drop down to verse 22. For as in Adam all die, physically speaking, we all face that. It is given for man once to die. For as in Adam all die, even so in Christ all, everybody, you see, shall be made alive. Verse 23, but each one in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, afterward those who are Christ at his coming. So Christ has been resurrected, and those who are Christ will be resurrected at his coming. Christ first, then the saints, and then later all mankind. What a wonderful plan, and only the great God could bring that all about. But now, let's turn back to James chapter 1. As we put this together, James, the Lord's brother, James, chapter 1, right after Hebrews, James 1, verse 18. Here we see the Lord's brother talking about this very subject. First fruits, James 1, verse 18, of his own will, he brought us forth by the word of truth that we might be a kind of first fruits. Of his creatures. Brethren, that's your role. That's your status as first fruits in the plan of God, being in that better resurrection as we're going to read about. Paul wrote about a better resurrection. Does the Bible say anything about that? Let's take a look. Turn back a few pages to Hebrews. Hebrews chapter 11. Great chapter. The faith chapter where all of the heroes of the faith, or many of them, are listed and it tells something about what made them great and how they overcame and and something about their lives. And in Hebrews 11, verse 35, it is written, Women received their dead, raised to life again. Others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. There it is. A better resurrection. There's going to be more than one, and this one is the best resurrection. Now, as we go back, go back a few verses and let's read about some of those people. You can read the whole chapter, but we'll start in verse 30. It says, By faith, the walls of Jericho fell down after they were encircled for seven days. God intervened for those people and brought about a great miracle. In the greatest city on earth at that time, the walls fell down flat. Verse 31, By faith, the harlot Rahab did not perish with those who did not believe when she had received the spies with peace. Verse 32, And what more shall I say? For the time would fail me to tell of Gideon and Barak and Samson and Jephthah, also of David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, turned to flight the armies of the aliens. You see, brethren, as you read about these great exploits that went on back there, the sacrifices those people made were worth it because they overcame and they'll be included in this better resurrection. Brethren, the sacrifices that you make in Christ's service will be worth it. Why? For the same reason, because you are going to gain the better resurrection just as these people mentioned back in Hebrews 11 will have be in that better resurrection. Brethren, I think that is reason to be glad. Let's push on. Let's look at 
the fourth one that I want to look at this afternoon. Be glad that you have the promise of God's protection now and in the future. As we look in this dangerous world, as we see what's prophesied to happen, we know that we definitely need protection. Now, David, a man after God's own heart, who was so eloquent, wrote a lot about God's protection and intervention. Turn back to Psalm 27. Psalm 27. Very inspiring psalm to me, and I'm sure to you as well. Psalm 27, verse 1. This is the psalm of David. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? You know, there's a great deal to fear in this world. And yet David had courage because God was his light and his salvation. The Lord is the strength of my life, David said. Of whom shall I be afraid? And I hope that we can put it in that light and realize there's much to fear as human beings. And yet if God is... uh, if God, if we have faith in God and if we uh, look at it in this light, we know that we don't have anything to fear. Look at verse 5. For in the time of trouble, he shall hide me in his pavilion. In the secret place of his tabernacle, he shall hide me. He shall set me high upon a rock. I personally think this is a prophecy of a place of safety, which we'll, we'll look at. But certainly we know that God has the power to shelter his people. We see how he delivered the Israelites when all was lost. They had the sea in front of them and Pharaoh's army behind them. Impossible situation. And yet God delivered them. And we have so many other situations that we could look at if we had the time this afternoon to see how God delivered people over and over in time. Look at Psalm 31. Turn over a few pages. Psalm 31. This is also a psalm of David. I hope you read all these psalms. We'll just read the highlights. Psalm 31, verse 20. David wrote, You shall hide them in the secret place of your presence from the plots of man. You shall keep them secretly in a pavilion or shelter from the strife of tongues. Now, it may not be apparent to us as human beings, but obviously God has the ability to protect. He has the ability to defend. He has the ability to deliver. And we see over and over in Scripture where that has happened. And we see over and over in the Psalms and in other places where uh, David talked about it. He said that he would hide them. You may need a hiding place sometime. God will provide it. That's what the book says. So I think we need to, to ask for that and to be prepared for that. Turn over a few pages to Psalm 91. Psalm 91. Psalm 91, verse 4. Psalm 91, verse 4. He shall cover you with his feathers. This is colorful language here, you see. I don't think God has feathers as such. But it's talking about like uh, a mother hen, you see, getting the chicks under her wings, you see. He shall, he shall cover you with his feathers, and under his wings you shall take refuge. His truth shall be your shield and buckler. The small shield, you see, was used for protection. 
And certainly if we understand God's word and we can use it and, and call on it when we need it, his truth will certainly be our shield and our buckler. Verse 5, you shall not be afraid of the terror by night. Our nation today is being, um, has been attacked and probably will be attacked by terrorists. I'm sure the people in the Mideast right now are, as the missiles fly and the bombs fall and all of those things occur, there's a lot of terror. Brethren, we says, it says here that we shall not be afraid of the terror by night, nor of the arrow that flies by day, nor of the pestilence that walks in darkness. We hear a lot about the avian flu and the pandemic that may come. We need to know that we can be protected from that. The pestilence that walks in the darkness, nor the destruction that lays waste at noonday. Drop down to verse 10. No evil shall befall you, nor shall any plague come near your dwelling. Verse 11. For he shall give you, give his angels charge over you to keep you in all your ways. In their hands they shall bear you up, lest you dash your foot against a stone. You know, as we read these things, brethren, some of you may be thinking, well, you know, bad things do happen to good people. And we saw what happened, that terrible thing, in Brookfield. And did that take God by surprise? No. Do we understand why it occurred? I certainly don't. But certainly we know that uh, it was the result of a deranged man. Those people who were there, though, at this point are awaiting the resurrection, a better time and a better place and a better age. And so while we can't explain that, we do have the promise that God will protect us, and we claim that promise. Turn back to Romans. Romans chapter 8, as we think about this. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. Wonderful, inspiring scripture to me, and I'm sure for you as well. Again, the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Rome, Romans 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? It's a good question. That's the perspective that we need. We may not be popular, but on the other hand, what we should be concerned about is, is God pleased with us? If God is for us, who can be against us? Verse 35, who then shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation, or distress, or persecution, or famine, or nakedness, or peril, or sword? A lot of bad things being described here. All of those things could could uh, you know, cost us our lives. But will that separate us from God? Let's go on. Verse 36, as it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are accounted as sheep for the slaughter and from time to time it does happen God's people are killed James was beheaded John the Baptist was beheaded you see people good people sometimes die before their time we don't have answers for that but we do have the truth we do have these promises that we read here verse 37 yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us Paul says in verse 38 for I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Incredible passage of Scripture. Brethren, Paul said, I am persuaded. Are you persuaded? 
Do you really have that belief? Are you persuaded that God can do this in your life and for you? It's certainly something that we need to to focus on and be uh, 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 prepared for. Brethren, the point here is God will be there for you. Nothing can separate you from the love of God. Now let's let's look forward to the future a bit. Turn back to Revelation chapter 3. Revelation chapter 3. Revelation 3, verse 10. Here it's talking to the church of Philadelphia. We all want to be Philadelphians. Hope we are Philadelphians and strive to do that. And in Revelation 3, verse 10, there's a promise made to the church at Philadelphia. Verse 10, Revelation 3, because you have kept my command to persevere. We talk a lot about perseverance. We focus on it. He said, I also will keep you from the hour of trial, which shall come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. Brethren, it says here that he will keep you. Now, what does it mean to keep you? It means to protect in a miraculous way. In a miraculous way. He will keep us from this great trial that's going to come on the earth. And we want that. We need that. Now, if you'll turn over a few few pages to Revelation 12, here we see the church described as a woman. Revelation 12. We're going to read this. This is dual. It happened in the Middle Ages and it will happen again. Revelation 12, verse 6. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle that she might fly into the wilderness to her place. It's talking about a persecuted church here where she is nurtured for a time and times and half a time from the presence of the serpent. Obviously picturing uh, Satan, the devil. So here we see that this church was being persecuted. And as I said, this is dual. It happened in the Middle Ages and it will happen again. Going on... Um, Actually, I wanted to read verse 6. Turn back to verse 6. Revelation 12, verse 6. Then the woman fled into the wilderness, where she has a place prepared by God, that they should feed her there 1,260 days. And that's the part that's dual. I got ahead of myself there. But that's this part. This is talking about God protecting the church during those times. And then in verse 14, we read that. We're seeing here that there is a place prepared. And we know that when the time is right, he'll reveal that to us and we will be protected. And the point, what is the point of all this as I'm trying to make here? God has protected and will protect his people. Brethren, this should make us glad. This should make us glad when we look around us and we see what's happening. Let's press on. The fifth point that I'd like to make this afternoon. Be glad that you can fellowship with brethren of like mind. I think that is such a great thing that we can we can do that. Turn back to 1 John. 1 John. Again, John, the friend of Jesus. 1 John 1. 1 John 1. Let's read verse 7. As we think about what a what a blessing it is and how glad we can be that we have people of like mind that we can fellowship with. First John 1, verse 7, But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, His Son, cleanses us from all sin. 
fellowship. It means to share. It means to participate, to benefit, to, to interact with. And I see that before services and, and after services. I often say when we come in here or other congregations, there's this happy chatter as people uh, enjoy seeing one another and connecting, talking about the events of the week and maybe things that they've learned in their Bible study or other things, planning for the feast or things that are going on. And it's, it's a wonderful thing to see that happen. It, it's because we have the Holy Spirit and we can have fellowship with one another. Now, without that Holy Spirit, we might be at each other's throat. <laughs> you know, sometimes we use oil to, to picture the Holy Spirit. Oil lubricates. Hopefully the Holy Spirit lubricates and we'll have less friction among our people, you see, because we should have that love for one another and really enjoy the fellowship that we should have. Turn over to Hebrews chapter 10. Hebrews 10. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Hebrews 10, verse 23. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering. You know, we need to be steadfast and and not wishy-washy, as it were, without wavering. For he who promised is faithful. And let us consider one another in order to stir up love and good works. You know, we do motivate one another. We are able to stir one another up in a right way, to encourage someone. Someone comes in and they're kind of down, and their friend, their brother, or their sister says, well, hey, you know, and and gives an encouraging comment or makes a suggestion. Maybe they've dealt with a problem and know how to handle it. Maybe just a kind word or an encouraging word. It really is an important thing that we do when we come here. Uh, To stir up love and good works. Verse 25, not forsaking the assembling of ourselves together, as is the manner of some. You know, many today stay home and, and, and watch uh, religious programs on the Internet or on television. And while that might have a place in your spiritual life, we are to come together as in a holy convocation. And it makes it plain here that we should assemble together. Uh, but exhorting one another so much more as you see the day approaching. Brethren, we obviously live in the time of the end. These are not usual times. We see things happening that haven't happened uh, at least to the same degree and the same intensity and in the same places on earth as we do now. We know that we are in those times. And since we are, it's even more important that we come here together and to stir up love and stir up good works, stir each other up in a right way. Now, as we do these things, we realize, I'm sure, brethren, turn back to uh, Proverbs 27. Great wisdom back there. Proverbs 27. One of the things that happens here as we interact with our brothers and sisters. Proverbs 27. Verse 17. Proverbs 27, verse 17. As iron sharpens iron... So a man sharpens the countenance of his friend. You know, it's, it, it's a, iron sharpens iron. And when we come here, we are able to make each other sharper and better servants of God, better able to serve one another. And I hope that we can take that to heart and, and, and try to do that when we're here. Now, for us, hopefully, a, a time of great joy is when we come here uh, to see each other and we do so coming together gladly. I won't turn there, 
But there's a wonderful scripture back in Psalm 122. Uh, it's a psalm of David. It's a song of ascent. You know, the Israelites sang these songs as they were going up to the feast in the autumn, to the Feast of Tabernacles, as they went up to Jerusalem, the songs of ascent. And Psalm 122, verse 1, is one of those psalms. And David said, I was glad when they said to me, let us go into the house of the Lord. Many of you learned that in Sunday school when you were little kids. But now I hope you have a better understanding of it. And you understand that it is. And it should make us very glad to come here to worship or to go to the feast or wherever it might be where God has placed His name. And we can have great gladness in doing that. Let's look at number six. Be glad that you can have a part in doing a very important work. You know, I think it's true that all of us uh, gives life a great deal more meaning if we can be a part of something that is greater than ourselves. It's very important. Turn over to John chapter 6. The Gospel of John, chapter 6. You know, Jesus Christ came with a message. John 6, verse 26. Jesus was giving his disciples instructions. John 6, verse 26. Now Jesus answered them and said, Most assuredly I say to you, you seek me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. You know, he had done the miracle of feeding them. Verse 27, he says, Do not labor for the food which you which perishes, but for the food which endures to everlasting life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal on him. Then they said to him, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Does God have works? Many of you in this room are full-time employees in doing that work, and others of you support it in so many different ways. And all of us do so by our prayers, this sort of thing. And this person asked, they asked, What shall we do that we may work the works of God? Jesus answered and said to them, This is the work of God that you believe in Him whom He sent. And what did Him who He sent say? He said to go into all the world. And preach the gospel. And so we're involved in doing that. Jesus came with a message. The kingdom of God. And in Matthew 28 and other places. He gave the disciples the duty of proclaiming it throughout the world. And brother we're carrying that on today. In every way that we can. Sometimes playing way above our heads. (laughs) Because we don't have the resources that we would like to have. We don't have the people that we need to do it. And yet we do what we can do. And ask God to make up the rest. In fact, James talked about that. Turn back to James chapter 1. James chapter 1. James 1 verse 22. Most of you have this memorized. James 1 verse 22. But be doers of the word, not hearers only, deceiving yourselves. So one thing that really sets us apart, I hope, as the church of God is we actually try to put God's word into practice. It's not something that we just talk about. It's something we try to apply. And then uh, in verse 25, but he who looks into the perfect law of liberty and continues in it and is not a forgetful hearer, but a doer of the work. What work is that? The work that we find described in this book. 
a doer of the work, this one will be blessed in what he does. Rather than be a doer. And when we do that, we see faith in action. Again, it's, it's great to be involved in something greater than ourselves that requires great teamwork. And we, we have our team in place all around the world. And everybody's working hard to do what we can do. And we ask God to make up what we lack. Now, there is a very definitive scripture on this subject. And we find it in 1 Corinthians 15. 1 Corinthians 15. We were there and looking at other scriptures. Let's look at 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Very important chapters. It talks about the resurrection. And as it wraps up, it puts things in perspective. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brethren, talking to the church here, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that your labor is not in vain in the Lord. We are to abound. In doing the work. Look it up, brethren. It means to thrive. It means to, to flourish. It means to overflow with. It means to be plentiful in the work. And I hope that, that as we do these things, that it will certainly bring you gladness. Brethren, you have your part. Again, you may be employed, maybe not. But praying and tithing, being a good example in all things. You know, the most powerful sermons are not given here at the lectern. The most powerful sermons of the Christian life is you live your life and do the things that you do, that you live and work and play in your community and in your neighborhood and in your business. It's a very powerful thing. That's a part of doing the work, just as much as the work that we do here in Charlotte. Being ready with an answer for those who ask. It's an important thing. Having our part in this important work, brethren, should make us glad. And I'm sure that it does make you glad. Brethren, let's look at my seventh point, the last one this afternoon. The seventh point. Be glad that God's plan, His reward, includes you personally. Now, it's not just the nation. It's not just the church and so on. These are made up of individuals, people, you and me. Brethren, it's personal. This gospel that we look at, this this plan that we uh, explore and think about, it's personal. Turn over to John chapter 10. John 10, verse 14. Jesus' words here. He describes himself in a colorful way. John 10, verse 14. He says, I am the good shepherd. And I know my sheep, and my sheep, and am known by my own. So clearly, as we read this, Christ knows you. You're one of His flock. He knows you personally. And brethren, you know Him. Or you should, and I'm sure that you do. And by studying and focusing on the Word and being guided by the Holy Spirit, you can can learn more about Him. It's it's an important concept. And as usual, the Paul, the Apostle Paul said it so very well. Turn back to 2 Timothy. Paul who had a way of boiling it down, making it plain. Some of his things are hard to understand, but very often he has a very well-turned phrase and it translates so beautifully. <clears throat> 2 Timothy 1, 
Second Timothy, as he wrote to this young minister giving him instruction, and it's recorded for us, it applies to us. First, Second Timothy, Second Timothy 1, verse 12. He wrote, For this reason I also suffer these things. Nevertheless, I am not ashamed, Paul said, for I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep what I have committed to him until that day. I asked you before in reading Paul's words, brethren, Paul was uh, persuaded. Are you? Are you persuaded? Are you glad? And have this knowledge in your heart. Brethren, we do speak of sobering things. Yet, we also look beyond the terrible times to the wonderful days beyond in God's kingdom on this earth. We long for that time. We look forward to for that occurring. Be glad you are called that you understand God's word. Be glad that you are a first fruit and that you have the promise of God's protection. Be glad you have the fellowship of your brethren and that you are involved in God's work. And finally, brethren, be especially glad, very happy that these promises, these benefits apply to you personally. It's a personal thing between you and God. With these things firmly fixed in your minds and hearts, we can serve God with joy and hear Him gladly.